Uh, don't forget, this coming Sunday, I say it in case some people came in late, we have church in the park down at McCormick Park. You don't want to forget that. Uh, otherwise, you'll come here, you'll be like, hey, where's everybody? And they'll say, McCormick Park, and you'll head down there. Uh, and if you want to be baptized, we need to know about that. So keep those things in mind uh, coming up for this next Sunday. With that, let's go ahead and pray together, get started, see what Jesus has for us today. Jesus. I thank you uh, for this whole journey we're in right now, looking at this glorious and amazing idea called doctrine, and that doctrine is not bland, it is not just academic, but it is, it is the very essence of what our faith is all about. It is the framework by which we live and understand how we relate to you and relate to others. And so I pray that we are attentive to this because we realize it is foundational for life. And we want our life to be truly wrapped up in you. We want it to be all about you and all that we do. So we thank you, love you, seek you, need you, want you, and ask for you to speak to us. In your good and awesome name. Amen. Well, I was uh, thinking about things this week as far as getting ready for the message. And I was thinking about the culture that we live in. And that we live uniquely, I think, in a culture of words. A culture of words. We can find words all over the place, right? I mean, right now a lot of you have a smartphone, which makes you probably a dumb person because it goes with you everywhere. Um, but you have a smartphone, and on that you can look at all kinds of words. You can look at news words and email words, and you can uh, find out scores and all of those words. And so you can be inundated with words, and you go home and you turn on the television, and you can get more words. Or between here and your television, you can turn on the radio and more words. We have libraries filled with words. And these words we look at and we long for to, to, to win our minds or stir our hearts or woo our soul. Even words sometimes that are frustrating or irritating. Even we sometimes seek words that we know are going to make us mad because we're so inundated by words. Some words, they totally inspire us. I have a dream. And those words rally a nation. Yes, uh, we need to go to that place. Sometimes words do that. Other times, words are radically cheapened. If you know the phrase, you better read recognize. Yeah, all seven of you are watching that show. Shame on you. All right, um... That, that shows how cheap we can make words, all right? We can do all sorts of things with words. I think about even right now going into a very profound political season. I mean, we are going to see an industry spend literally billions of dollars just to get out words. And both sides are going to be doing the same thing. They're going to say, our words bring hope. Our words bring change. Our words bring fixing. Our words bring opportunity. Our words bring correction. Our words are going to restore. And at the same time they're saying that, they're saying, and the other guy's words, they're not to be trusted and they're bad and he's wrong and he's icky and don't vote for him. Words, words, words. I think the problem, or maybe the challenge for us as human beings, is that we know words are powerful, but unfortunately, because of our own ingrained narcissism as a race, because of the sin that resides in us as human beings, we are not great at properly wielding the power of words. 
we wield them with power. We use their power, but we don't always use their accurate or full capacity in the way that words were really designed to exist. See, originally, words were designed to create. Words were designed to uplift. Words were designed for worship. All words were to tether back to the one first great word. But in our rebellion and sin and fall and contamination, we've used words for all sorts of other things. And we've sometimes lost in that the magnification of the word from our words. And so that, in a lot of ways, is our topic today. The word, but not in a way that you might think. Now, what we've been doing for the last, I think, seven, eight weeks now, something like that, is we've been in this series on doctrine. And again, like I was just praying about, doctrine is not one of those words where we should run from and say, oh man, that's bland, that's boring, that's not going to change my life at all. No, doctrine changes lives. Doctrine changes things. Doctrine brings joy. Doctrine gives a sense of direction when life is hard. We should welcome doctrine. And so it's been with that attitude that we have looked at things like God is. God is a trinity. And we've looked at God speaks, the revelation of his word. Right? And God creates everything that we see. And then God loves by imparting image to us as his image bearers. But then we see that God judges. Because we as a race rebelled. And then in that rebellion... Last week we saw that God pursues. That God pursues in the context of words that we call covenants. That God speaks and says, I will do this. I choose you. I desire you. I love you. I want you. I seek you. I'm in pursuit of you. And God has a tenacious pursuit, right? He pursues Adam even after the rebellion. And he pursues him in grace. And then the human, the human race, gets sideways again, and God pursues Noah in grace. And humanity rebels again, so God pursues in grace a person named Abraham. And then again, there's rebellion, and so God pursues through Moses, and then more rebellion. And God pursues through David, and more rebellion. And so God pursues again. And as God pursues this time, it's not through all of the other mechanisms and means. If anything, God says, I am fulfilling a promise that I've always made. That I will pursue at the boldest level possible. In fact, if anything, what he says is, I'm coming. God is coming. Which really shouldn't be terribly radical or new because, again, the way God originally made anyway was to dwell with us. We fracture that and then God says, but I'll still pursue and I will still come and I will still dwell with you. That is the focus of the section of scripture we're looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible and you would opt to use that Bible today, which would be great, you can open up to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, because this is where John begins to build a case about these promises, about this pursuit of God, how it's embedded in the Word of God, how God seeks to come. That's his heart, that's his drive. He's going to pen this in the first 18 verses. In fact, this morning, we're really only in two camps of Scripture. 
John chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2. Those are the only two places we're going today. So last week was like every book of the Bible. Today, just a couple of simple sections, right? So that's going to help us out. So if you're in John chapter 1, John starts in a place that is obvious. Right? He starts with the obvious. And he starts with, before God comes, God was. God just was. And so it starts off in John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, when John opens up with that simple phrase, in the beginning was the Word, first of all, we go, man, I know this one a little bit. It echoes Genesis. In the beginning, God created, right? We remember that. Here he changes it up a little bit. In the beginning was the Word. Now, when he uses that phrase, the Word, in the original language, it's logos. He says, in the beginning was the logos. And for anybody reading John's gospel, reading those first few words, they would have already like a preconceived idea of what the Logos represents. Everybody would. If you were a nice Jewish boy and you got a hold of John's gospel, you opened it up, you started to read, you go, oh, in the beginning was the Logos. Well, of course there was the Logos. It's an attribute of God in the Old Testament. It's that sense of God's power displayed. That's the word. That's the logos. So when God created, he spoke and it existed, right? That is an attribute of the one true God of the Old Testament. And so he would look at that and say, I'm good with this opening. This sounds great. I am on board. At the same time, if you were a nice Greek boy and you picked up, you know, a copy of John and you started to read it, you say, in the beginning was the logos. Of course there was the logos. The Logos was like the force. It was the thing that established all of the rules and laws of the universe. It was the fabric of all creation. That's the Logos. And so any culture at this point in this first opening section would say, Yep, I agree. Amen. And it always just was. That word was is in the perfect tense in its original language, which means the word just always existed. There was never a time it didn't exist. It was just perpetual. So the Jews would read it and say, yep. The Greeks would read it and say, yep. Everybody would say, we agree. So John continues on. Let's see how far we can go before you disagree. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, this is where it gets a little murky, and a Jewish boy would look and say, um, it was word, word, was with, I guess if you mean like in his mouth, then yeah, yeah, okay, I'm still tracking. I I, I can go there with you. And the Greek would look at it and say, "Uh, metaphor, yeah, okay, good enough for me, good metaphor. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Okay, we're tracking with you. And then John says, and the word was God. And at that point, the, the, the Jewish boy again would go back to, okay, I'm good with that. Yep, 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 you're back on track. You kind of said it like Yoda would say it. Weird, but I got it. And the Greek would pretty much be the same way. All right, tracking. Yes, I'm with you. That this framework of the natural order is, quote, God. So they're all good in verse 1. Nobody's complaining in verse 1. But then there is the shocker. And the shocker is that before God comes, God was triune. And where the shocker is, is in verse 2, when then John says, and he was in the beginning with God. 
I mean, at this point, you know, the nice little Jewish boy, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he was in the beginning. What you talking about, Willis? I mean, uh-uh, oh, no, you didn't. You know, I mean, it's not, this is not in line with the way that a nice Jewish boy would think. Because suddenly what you have between verse 1 and verse 2 is the idea that the Word, who has always existed, was another person with God co-eternal, right? Because that word was means always was, never was had a beginning, never started out somehow. So he just always was with God. So the Jews who were monotheists and said there's only one God suddenly read this and go, wait, now you've got two persons. We get the God we know and we have the word that we all thought was an attribute of God, but now you're saying he is someone distinctly different from God, but still one with God. And the same problem for the Greeks. They get, whoa, wait, you've just personified the word. You're breaking a rule, man. There is no personification of the second person. It doesn't work. But John's saying, no, that's exactly what's going down. The word is someone distinctly different than God, but is still God. There's this oneness, but more than oneness. There is the singular essence, God, one God, but in more than one person. And this is where John begins to take things, and this is where the wheels would get a little wobbly. And so John just says, well, hey, man, since we're there, let's go all the way with it. Let's get crazy. And so he says, not only is there this other person who has always been with God, who is the Word, but it is the second member of the triune God who is Creator. Not just chilling with God, like God's like, hey, I'm going to make something. And this other guy, this word guy was like, hey, cool, I'll watch. No, if anything, God says, we need to create. And he looks at the second person, says, we need to create. How about you create? And the second person, the word says, great, I will create. So in verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. All things were made. I mean, just contemplate that thought for just a second all things think about the universe 13.8 billion light years across immense 200 billion galaxies 100 billion stars per, per galaxy i was reading an article this week that they estimate there are 60 octillion planets in estimate right now all of that vastness John says that the Word who was with God, He created it. Vast, huge, expansive, massive. But then the same one who does all of that goes all the way down and cares about the design of like the wings of a dragonfly. All this precision and detail in the littlest things. Right? Gives us the butterfly, gives us the beluga whale. That's a big difference. Gives us parsley, gives us pansies. There's a difference. Redwoods and dogwoods, there's a difference. And then for those who like to really understand, well, how does it work? God gave a whole other world to that. He gave general relativity where everybody goes, wow, everything's so balanced, there's such symmetry. But then he gave quantum mechanics where we go, tilt. How does that even work? Profound chaos and perfect symmetry all sharing a universe together. 
And then he gave us the capacity to investigate that, to ponder that, to look upon all of that and just tremendous wonder. I mean, imagine the God who makes the poet speechless makes the mathematician equally speechless. Both stand in complete awe of the creation. And John says it was the Word who did all of that. He made it all and all marvel. Even when they don't recognize the God who made it, they marvel at what He made. And so Jesus is the Maker. All things were made through Him. And it says, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now that's a really confusing way of saying it. Like you could have cleaned it up more. But the point is that it's saying all things that were makeable, the Word made. Which again reinforces that the Word was not made. The second hymn was not made. He's maker, never made. Was always with God, right? He's the creator. And he didn't just make it, it all sustains in him. Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue. In fact, I loved it reading one physicist one time when he was talking about super string theory, the very bare essence of all creation that we know. He says all that is is little strings of energy that is data or basically words. It's just words. Or maybe according to Colossians chapter 1, the word. And so John says, man, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then he goes into verses 4 through 5 and it says, And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, these are echoes of Genesis. Right? These are really echoes of Genesis. You go back to Genesis. What was the first stated creation, the first spoken creation? Let there be light. And so the light pierces the darkness. It ruptures the blackness. What is the last spoken statement of creation? God gives life. First, light. Last, life. All of that pierces the darkness. And so John is writing about this word. He's like, man, not only was he with God, but he was God and he created. And everything we hold dear, all the bookend stuff, beginning to end, he made. He speaks darkness. It flees. It ruptures. It comes apart at his words. That is the one I'm writing about, he says. He's building this methodical case. What's great about this, and probably what you've noticed so far, is he doesn't give a name yet. He's sort of building to a climax. So all we know is that there was word, creator, one who brings light, life, darkness flees. Now what's great about this, like I said earlier, it, it, there's, a, there's a promise attached to this word. 
There's a promise that God wasn't going to remain distant. Again, you go back to Eden. When God created, God created it was good. When God created man, he created man in a loving image so that he might walk with him in the garden in the cool of the day. They would hang out together, chill. Adam could ask questions. God would answer. They were in a loving, tight bond of image and image bearer. And then, of course, again, we sinned, we rebelled. We were kicked out of Eden, that whole scene. But it wasn't like at that point when the relationship was fractured that God said, I'm going to be extraterrestrial from now on. You will never see me come and try to dwell with you again. That's not what happens. In fact, if anything, immediately there was a promise. There was a promise that God will come. The Creator was coming. That's the promise. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that promise reoccur in Numbers and Isaiah and Malachi. You see it. It says, I see him now, but not now. Right? It's like, I I see that he's coming. He's just not going to be here now. It says, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This will be the son of righteousness, and he will rise with healing in his wings. It's, it's this idea that constantly there was promise. Even if you go back to last week, where God kept making covenant. Hey, there's a covenant with Adam. One day there will be a seed who destroys the one who's destroyed your relationship to me. And then to Noah, there'll be a seed from your lineage. And he will restore the order that I have covenanted to you. And to Abraham, there'll be a seed that blesses the nations. And to Moses, I will use the law to take people back to the seed. And that seed will be like the kingdom of David, but it will have no end. Right? All of those pointed to, all of those showcased this one promise that the Creator was coming. But when he comes, it's going to be unique. Now, John says in chapter 1, verse 9, he is the true light, which gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. That's the promise. But as he comes, he's not going to come God-like, though he's God. And he's not going to come lording, though he's Lord. And he's not going to come kingly, though he's king. He's not going to come in the fashion that anybody would anticipate. Not at all. In fact, all John says, very simply, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh. Right? All of this grandness in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, the promise in verse 9, where does it start to reach the apex? The Word became flesh. And, and, and I love this. Uh, because you have this borderless, omnipotent God that then has applied to him um, a very pedestrian or impoverished word, flesh. I mean, they, they could have used a bigger word. And God became a human being. But that, that's almost too noble. God became a person. God became a human body. But John chooses to go from the immense, the infinite God to this incarnate image of just in flesh. I mean, that's all incarnate means in meat. 
It's like all of the power, all of the glory, all of the love, all of the passion of God gathers in full capacity and then embodies just in a chunk of meat. C.S. Lewis called this the greatest miracle of the Bible. The greatest miracle. Because again, you get the image. It's like a funnel right there. It's completely infinite. How do you even encase infinite? Well, that's how infinite God is. And so he simply, humbly becomes flesh. He goes lowly to be the Redeemer in the dust. That's how he comes. In fact, as you look at the story, you see that he comes uh, very unexpectedly because this is the casing that he chooses. In fact, jumping over to uh, Philippians chapter 2, you see the unexpected nature of his arrival. It says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says, though he was in the form of God, all right? He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? So the Word, the Creator, who becomes flesh, did not before He becomes flesh say, you know what, wait, I'm God. Hold up, man. I, I, I have rights. I have divine privilege. I'm not going. Get the Holy Spirit. He's like the Mikey of the Trinity. He'll do anything. You know, He doesn't... He doesn't do that. No, he says, I could do that, right? I could. I'm God. I made them. I set up the rules. They rebelled against it. I can demand anything, but I will not grasp onto my divinity. I will not hold it so tightly that I am unwilling to do this. And so, it's as though in the form of God, he didn't latch onto that. See, we, we, we do that often. I have rights. I'm going to defend my rights. I'm going to claim my rights. I'm going to fight for my rights. Man, the Word had all sorts of rights. He says, I'm not going to grasp onto those. It says in verse 7, but he emptied himself. So, goes from, I made it all, billions of light years across, unfathomable numbers of things in the universe to look at, all the detail of our planet. And he says, I'll empty myself. This idea of empty doesn't mean that he put off his divinity. It means he holstered it. He holstered it and he put on an additional cloak of his humanity or humanness. He says, that's what I'll do. I'll pour myself out. That's another rendering of this text. Pour myself out. I will dump myself out completely. How does he do it? It says, by taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. He says, though I'm rich, I will become poor. And though I'm master, I'll become slave. And though I'm victor, I will come to this world and I will look like a loser. But the reality is this. If you're going to lift something up, What's the first thing you have to do to lift it? You have to stoop below it. You have to stoop to lift. And if the Word, God, Creator, is going to lift the race, He must stoop below the race to lift it. 
He's the true Atlas in that sense. He must bear the weight of the race to lift it. So he takes the form of a servant, which is so different than the form of God. I mean, think about the form of God. Right? That's what it started off as. Though in the form of God, powerful, magnificent, foreboding. And then he takes the form of a servant or a slave, which is powerless and shoddy and weak. But he does it to stoop. He says he takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So the word God creator becomes one of us and then one of the lowest ones of us. Right? And then he's born into this world. And you think about even the way he was born, right? Born to a teen mom. That's what Mary was. She was a 13-year-old, maybe 14-year-old teen mom. Now, she was a virgin. The Holy Spirit overshadows her. Jesus is then found in in her womb. There is no MTV show for that. Sorry. Um, But a miracle. A teen mom who is a virgin to bear God. Incredible. That this is what God would choose. But this is a part of Him emptying Himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men. Then he grows up in a home which, frankly, is a mine and ours home. You ever think about that? Right? I mean, Mary has Jesus, but Jesus is adopted by Joseph at that point. And then Mary and Joseph, they have more kids. Mine and ours. And don't think that that didn't create tension. You see, later in the ministry of Jesus, his brothers didn't believe in him. They didn't necessarily respect him. They thought he was nuts. They wanted to commit him. They were even willing to be a part of getting rid of him at one point. I'm sure that tension trickled all the way back to the beginning in the home where it's like, man, Jesus never gets in trouble. He never gets a speaking. He's your favorite. He's perfect. Right? So, like, I mean, you know it. Right? These are human beings. Jesus is the only one that's sinless. Man, imagine that being your big brother. That's what it is. And so Jesus would have to put up with even the rejection of his own family in his own home, right? This is a part of the form of a servant. What's great is apparently Jesus learns a good, honest trade. He learns to swing a hammer with his father. And so he is just, he's a hardworking guy. And if you look at where he grew up, he grows up basically in their version of Sultan, all right? It's just for you, my man. All right, so. Right? And, and, and so Nazareth, Sultan, right? So what's the chief export? Nothing good is what I meant where Jesus comes from. All right, you're from Sultan. You're an awesome export. All right, so um, we'll take you in Duval anytime. All right, so uh, nothing about how he comes into this world is expected at all, right? He doesn't come on a throne. He doesn't go into a tabernacle. He's not lifted up inside a temple. He doesn't do any of that. He comes completely unexpectedly. In the lowest of conditions. But he comes relationally. He comes relationally. It might be unexpectedly, but the whole purpose is relational. That's why going back to John, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He doesn't come as a royal ambassador, as a celebrated guru, as a brilliant general. He doesn't come as an eccentric uh, celebrity. He doesn't come as some type of political authority. It literally says here, 
he pitched his tent with us. That's literally dwells among us. The, the most accurate translation is he pitched a tent. So, not a throne, not a tabernacle, not a temple, a tent. He did it to be relational. And so you get this scene where everybody would think, when God comes, lots of clouds, lots of lightning, lots of thunder, lots of angels rolling in like a giant posse. And instead, he comes lowly, born to a teen mom, in a divey town, leaves at 30, and is relational with people. So what he does is he goes around, and he slaps out his tent, and puts up his little folding chair, and opens up his paps blue ribbon, and has his NASCAR hat. That's Jesus. I mean, honestly, that's Jesus. That's where John is taking this whole idea, the Word. God creator, maker of everything, the God who is coming, comes and pitches a tent. This is the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss, all right? That's what this is, right? Just slapping on the NASCAR, hanging out with the bros. That's what the word does. And imagine, too, I mean, just think about that image, um, of undercover, I mean, pull back for a second. Go back to the big picture, right? Humanity's sinful. Every time God speaks, the covenant bearers kind of blow it. God speaks through prophets. They kill the prophets. So finally, the boss is coming. He's coming undercover. Now, typically, if a boss came onto a scene that was so broken, so contaminated, so corrupted, so resistant, how would a boss roll in? Probably pretty foreboding, demanding, would have an entourage of very powerful people behind him, black suit, red tie, basically symbolizing you're fired, right? He's going to be passing out pink slips, like it's just like, you know, campaign stickers on election day. I mean, just that's what a normal boss would do. But this boss doesn't roll in like that. He says, no, no, I'm here to dwell with you, to pitch a tent alongside of you. In fact, I don't just come relationally. He says, I come sacrificially. Sacrificially, because it says he humbled himself and became obedient. So, the word that can speak and make, the word that can speak and judge, is the word that comes and dwells, relates, and chooses to personally sacrifice, to become humble, to actually obey. Now, what did he obey? Well, he obeyed God's will. He says, my will is to do the one of him who sent me in John chapter 6. He obeyed the Spirit's leading, like in Luke chapter 4, where the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. He obeyed the law, because the law had demands, and so it says he was born of a woman, born under the law, in Galatians 4.4. 4. I mean, he obeys. See, that is his sacrifice. That is his servanthood. That is his humble obedience. And yet, as he does this sacrifice relating to us, it is profound. It is profound beyond words because even John says it that way, right? He says, the word became fleshy, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Here's what's cool about this. Go back to John's culture. 
right? They're Old Testament people to the core. They knew the Old Testament. And if you thought about God's glory in the Old Testament, it was real simple. God's glory was a pillar of fire. God's glory was a pillar of smoke. God's glory was on a mountain that was encased in blackness and thunder and lightning came. I mean, it was going to be potent and fearful. If you see the glory of God in the Old Testament, you load your depends. That's what happens. Honestly, people, man, they, it was, well, I'm afraid. And then John says, we've seen his glory. This glory was incarnational glory. It was, it was so different. In fact, um, it was a glory that was uh, accessible, right? Accessible because it says it's the glory as the only son of the Father, so it's not Shekinah glory. It's not pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, scary mountain glory. It's the glory of the Word who is creator, who is light, who is life, who pierces darkness. He's the one that comes as flesh. And in humility, people see the glory of God. They see glory not in the giant, powerful expanse. They see it in the sacrificial humanness. Right? That's where they see this glory. It's a glory that is full of grace and truth. Man, that is the height of God's glory. Grace and truth. And both are so unbelievably important. Right? So are so, both are so critical. You never want to lose one for the other. Ever. And that happens so often. We want truth. We love truth. We stand for truth. And we don't sound like we have much grace. Or it's, we're all grace, we're all love, we're all just happy. And sometimes no truth. And yet what we need to remember is that both are revealing the glory of God. Both come to center. And if you forsake one or if you forsake the other, you really forsake the essence of both. Because grace gives hope to truth. And truth gives power to grace. And so to see the glory of God is to see those truths embedded together. Running together. And so God comes profoundly, accessibly, full of grace and truth. And John finally hits the apex and says, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, right? Verse 16, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. That phrase literally means crests of grace with no troughs. Just crest, 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 crest of grace. From his fullness, we have all received crests of grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice John's progression. Again, I keep going back to it just so we lock it in. The Word, who is creator, author of light, author of life, pierces darkness. Well, we can relate because he comes in flesh. And he's not just word, but now he's also seen as son. And God isn't just God, but he's seen as father. And the apex of their glory is not fire and smoke, but grace and truth. Wave upon wave upon wave of grace. That's the God-man. In fact, even that idea of grace and truth that we've been talking about so communicates then the mission of Jesus. That God comes incarnate. 
as the great missional theologian. He is the first missional theologian. Because grace is all about mission. Because we need grace as fallen, broken, sinful, selfish human beings. We need grace. That is mission. And Jesus comes as the first great missionary. But we need truth, and that's the theologian that is Jesus, where he reveals fully the Father to us. Shows us who God is. And so Jesus, the missional theologian, comes, first of all, to reveal God's person. To say, you know what, you may have misunderstood who God the Father is. Let me show you who God the Father is. You think he's unapproachable, but he's approachable. You think he's harsh, but he's actually loving and kind. In fact, that's the word in the Old Testament repeatedly. Hesed, hesed, hesed. Loving kindness, loving kindness. That describes God the Father. And Jesus says, let me show you the hesed of God the Father. So he shows us what a true father is. Jesus, the missional theologian, also comes to preach God's gospel. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That is, that is the good news. Good news is always set against the backdrop of bad news. What's the bad news? We're not great friends with God. Good news. God wants to be friends with us. Makes it possible. Jesus, the missional theologian, also comes to model God's standard. You know that passage we looked at in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Though being in the form of God, he did not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself and became obedient. You know what that text is all about? It says, Hey, Christians, let this mind be in you, what, which was in Christ Jesus, who in the form of God. And then it goes on. So Jesus models in going from supreme deity to stooping servant. He models to us, hey, you should do the same. When we're tempted to say, no, 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 I have my rights and you've offended me and I'm going to get even because that's what I'm allowed to do. Jesus would say, oh, wait, there's this time where I didn't do that. He says, I didn't do that. I could have done that. Instead, I stooped when I could have played my rights. He models God's standard. Jesus, the missional theologian, also comes to build God's church. I mean, the church matters to Jesus. We see church as kind of extracurricular or important to our spiritual development or something. If we have nothing else going on on Sunday, we'll be a part of that. Jesus says, you know what? I bled out for that. I came to this world to create that. I love that. I married that. I consider that to be my most cherished possession on the planet. That church. He comes to build God's church. And he comes to reclaim God's world. If anything, he actually comes to reclaim his own world. Go back to Colossians 1. Everything was made by him and for John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and He created all that we see. And then He comes in flesh, relates to us to win His world back. And in the ultimate demonstration of sacrifice, how does He come to do that? To do that, Jesus our God comes to die. He comes to die. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our perfect God who demands perfect obedience comes to us and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Imperfect.
perfect love comes to a rebellious lot and says, I will be like you. I will be among you. I will come under you. I will suffer and die for you to lift you up. Next week at the park, we get to look at that very story. God dies. The cross. The means by which we are received, reconnected, and restored. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these reminders of the fact that you are God and you are man. You have a union of those two natures, but one person, and you are fully God. And we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you were willing to be sent of your Father for us. We are thankful that you were willing to obey your Father's will, be guided by the Spirit's leading, completely do the law without sin or error. So that we who did not want to follow your Father's leading, who did not want to be guided by your Spirit, and who did not like your law, could be reconciled to you. We thank you for so rich a grace. We thank you for so profound a truth. May we behold that as your glory in your name. Amen.